Calling all Crooked Media fans, we need your feedback and we're 100% prepared to bribe you for it. This is a new way for those of you who love Crooked content and our mission to make your voices heard. It's your chance to influence everything from merch designs to our digital content to what Love It Eats for Lunch. Okay, I guess. That last part's a joke, obviously. He's ordering Panda Express again and no one can stop him. That's I'm true, reading that's this. True, that's true. Did they not know I was going to read this? <laughs> Here's how it works. Just fill out a survey about your Crooked podcast preferences and you're in. We'll reach out to you when we need your opinion and you'll get a promo code to the Crooked store every time you participate. So sign up, help us out because Tommy gets scared when you show up at his gym to tell him about your t-shirt ideas. That is true. It was a good idea though. Go to crooked.com slash insiders to join today. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when an argued man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. I'm Melissa Murray. I'm Leah Littman. And I'm Kate Shaw. And this is a very special episode of Strict Scrutiny. Netflix, the media juggernaut that has facilitated the release of our favorite duchess from the clutches of imperialism. Salute to you. When they weren't freeing princesses, Netflix was also hard at work releasing new original content, including on February 17th, a six-episode docuseries about one of our con law favorites, the 14th Amendment. So the docuseries, which is titled Amend, The Fight for America, is a deep dive into the history of the 14th Amendment, Reconstruction, and Redemption, as well as a really trenchant look at how the 14th Amendment has scaffolded various civil rights movements, including the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, and the gay rights movement. It is a star-studded event, with executive producers Will Smith and Larry Wilmore shepherding notables like Yara Shahidi and Laverne Cox through the vagaries of constitutional law. Basically, it's the constitutional law class you wished you took. So today we are joined by Robe Imbriano, who is one of the executive producers and creators of the series, as well as my terrific colleague, Michelle Adams, professor of law at Cardozo Law School, who is one of the experts featured in the series. We should note that a number of strict scrutiny favorites and past guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel, Dale Ho, Emily Bazelon, and our own Melissa Murray are also featured in various episodes. So welcome to the podcast, Robe and Michelle. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you. This is an amazing production, Robe. So congratulations to you all for dreaming it up, executing it, and for getting it into everyone's Netflix stream just in time to ride out the end of this pandemic. Um, As con law nerds, we totally love this. But I'm wondering, (laughs) what were the pitch meetings like? Because I can't imagine that Hollywood was immediately sold on a six-episode arc about the 14th Amendment. Well, it's just obvious they wanted it, right? I mean, it's, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't? Yeah, no, who wouldn't? I, I, you know, it, it. this actually started because I was doing uh, a number of uh, classroom films about the Constitution a few years ago and uh, was about to start on a film about uh, Philadelphia and the creation of the Constitution, blah, 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 blah. And 
I had two conversations, one with David Blight, uh, which stopped me in my tracks, as, as, as he often does, uh, and the other with Akhil Marr, uh, where they introduced me to this idea, because I had not gone to law school, uh, about the 14th Amendment. And I was gobsmacked. I, how, how do I not know this? How do all of us not walk around with this knowledge of this amendment like we do the First Amendment or the Second Amendment or anything else? So I've wanted to do this for some time. Uh, I was with the documentary group in New York, and I went into uh, my, my, my boss's office, my co-creator, Tom Yellen, and I said, hey, um, so I want to do the six-hour thing on the 14th Amendment. And he's the only fool in the world who would say, that sounds really interesting. <laughs> Let's try this. Um, we met Will Smith on another project. Uh, I went to uh, meet with Will while he was filming in New York City. We were in some subway someplace uh, while he was on location. And we had about 30 seconds with him. And we said, hey, we want to do this thing on the 14th Amendment. He's like, I'm in. Sounds good. Every (laughs) time I call him, I never get that response. Once he got on board, we had a series of of meetings uh, with uh, the Ford Foundation. We did a a little trailer, sort of a proof of concept uh, to test out the monologue idea. Um, And then we pitched it to Netflix. And, you know... Same deal. Uh, you go in and you say, hey, I want to do a six-episode series on the 14th Amendment. Eh. You say, you go in and, and you say, hey, I want to do a six-episode series with Will Smith. Okay, now we're talking. You know, we'll listen to that. And, you know, once we had Will on board, then, then we could take liberties with this in terms of the way we put it together. We could include performance. And it just opened up all kinds of doors, um, you know, in, in terms of our storytelling capabilities. And I imagine it helped that Ava DuVernay had just finished The 13th, which was a documentary about the 13th Amendment as well. I love Ava. I'm a huge Ava fan. And I have to say, we started this project in 2015. So this was a year before 13th came out. When it came out, it blindsided us. We had no idea that she was doing it. And and we saw a, a release party. We actually went to the premiere and, I, you know, it was amazing, and I was really happy for her, but I was also a little kind of bummed out because we thought we had owned this territory. And suddenly there was this great film on another Reconstruction Amendment out there, uh, but it, it ended up being a, a, a boon to us, not, not an obstacle. There's plenty of room in the Reconstruction Amendments for everyone. Like, <laughs> like I'm ready for the 15th, so let, let's. I'm going to talk to Will about that next. Leave with the 15th, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Maybe we could time the documentary on the 15th with passing H.R. 1 or the John Lewis, you know, reconstruction of the Voting Rights Act. So there's an idea. How about that? So we wanted to then ask about the rest of the team, at least the on-screen team uh, that we all saw. So obviously, Larry Wilmore was both a producer and figures very prominently um, in the series. And then you just have this tremendous cast of really notably diverse actors. So Hollywood Foreign Press Association, take note. Um, Sort of how did you build the team? And was this a conscious decision uh, on your part, sort of how to cast the series? We actually went through two different rounds of casting because it started with our amazing experts. Two of them are here with us right now. Uh, You know, it, it was really important that we find 
uh, a, a diverse group of people to talk about this uh, on a scale that actually, um, you know, brought a lot of people into the room and a lot of different people into the room to show its importance uh, to all of those people. Um, and so that casting was one thing. We, we needed people who were really great at telling stories. In fact, um, I don't know, Melissa and Michelle, if you know this, uh, we never referred to y'all as experts. We referred to you as storytellers. And, you know, that was, that was really important to the development of, of, of the process and the project. Uh, and that was my, my co-creator, again, Tom Yellen. That was his idea. Uh, and it was, it was really important because we were story first. It, it, it wasn't about trying to teach the law as so much as it was trying to tell these stories where the, the lessons of the law were embedded. And once we went down that road, figuring out how to include the voices of the people who were involved in these stories uh, was the next, um, the next real challenge. And I'm a huge fan of Anna DeVere Smith. Uh, um, Ossie Davis and Ruby D had done a, a project uh, back in the 60s where they did this, this very strange, quirky thing on stage where they do these readings and uh, poetry and, and all these different things. And I thought that that's actually not a bad model for us. Um, if we have Will as host and I can get someone like Mahershala Ali to play Frederick Douglass, then we're putting together something that would be really compelling. Um, we were really fortunate uh, because the director, Kenny Leon, was available um, and we caught him in between things. And so we brought Kenny on and Kenny and I uh, FaceTimed Mahershala because Mahershala had been in a play of Kenny's before, uh, before he became Mahershala. And he immediately bought into the mission of the piece. And, you know, then we were off. Like, once you have Will Smith and Mahershala Ali, you know, the sky truly is the limit. You're, you're, you're already above the clouds. And so then it was just calling people. We worked with a casting agent. We worked with a number of different people. We did a, a five-week run basically in Los Angeles where we shot all of the monologues uh, at the same time, sometimes three and four different actors a day. Um, and everyone, everyone brought their best selves to it. It was really quite amazing. Um, most people had never heard about the 14th Amendment. They had the same reaction I did when David Blight told me, you know, sure, 14th Amendment. Okay, yeah, I got that. Um, but no one really had, had known what they were walking into and doing the research for the characters, reading the monologues, understanding some of that it led to uh, some really profound moments, both on set and just off set when we, we, we were talking afterwards. It was really a beautiful thing. It's so interesting to hear you describe this as not law, but storytelling, because, you know, one way of thinking about this is really law outside of the courtroom or lawyering outside of the courtroom. You know, one of the people mm -hmm. that is featured in the docuseries, Brian Stevenson, of course, is involved in projects where, you know, they are trying to construct memorials to lynching in the South. And that That's is happening, right. you know, outside of and near courthouses to try to make people familiar with the stories mm -hmm. and the histories that inform our law today. And, you know, one of the things I thought about while watching the docuseries and then also thought about 
when you said that is this is also kind of like a Hamilton take on Reconstruction, right? You know, some of the ideas associated with Alexander Hamilton gained additional prominence and got additional traction, you know, after the musical brought them to life and made more people familiar with them. And this project, you know, again, bringing these additional stories to a broader audience, I kind of think of as uh, an important form of lawyering, too. Yeah, I I mean, I think one of the really important aspects of all of this is seizing the narrative. And, you know, this was a narrative that had not been taught for a very long time. I mean, we went through history books. One of the things we were prepared to do is to show in all of these history books uh, how the 14th Amendment isn't taught or is lumped in with 13th, 14th, 15th in one paragraph on one page somewhere, you know, in the middle of the book. So to take the narrative of agency and the most vulnerable among us fighting for these rights and then winning these rights uh, was something that we felt was really, really important to do. And I mean, it's funny, Alyssa, you say, you know, you talk about having room for more reconstruction. There was no one doing it. So we had plenty of room to tell these stories. And, um, you know, it, 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 it afforded us actually uh, the time to, to get the storytelling right. So you mentioned David Blight and, you know, stalwarts like Eric Foner, um, these historians who figure really prominently in the film. Um, and as you started to say, you have this incredible team sort of of storytellers, including you know, Sherilyn Eiffel and Kimberly Crenshaw and Martha Jones and Kara Bridges and, you know, and our co-host Melissa and our guest Michelle. Mm-hmm. So it does feel like in this really important way, in the same way that you are offering, you know, the piece of the narrative about this sort of post-Civil War moment makes a really important point that the narrative kind of battle over the meaning of the Civil War was largely won by the South in terms of cultural production and the writing of history in all kinds of deeply damaging and destructive ways. And that this feels like uh, an important, sort of as Leah was saying, uh, kind of corrective project, right? So that there is so much power in storytelling, and this is sort of how we write history. And so um, so it just seems so powerful and important on that score. So since we have one of the um, sort of expert storytellers, um, not our co-host, but uh, Michelle Adams with us, Michelle, I wanted to sort of ask um, ask you to come in a little bit. You're featured prominently on a number of episodes. So first, you know, um, how, from your perspective, can you tell us how you got involved in the project? And given the many demands on your time, right, you've got this huge and really exciting book project you're working on. You are a super devoted and fantastic teacher. Like, this is a big time commitment, I presume. Why did you prioritize spending the time to work on this project? Well, I mean, I think for some of the reasons we already talked about, um, you know, this is a project that it was sort of a project that was needed to be made. And it was it was waiting for you, Robe, and the rest of the <laughs> team to make this. And in a lot of ways, I think that we as a nation have been waiting for you to make this. And um, when you reached out to me, when your team reached out to me uh, and asked me to be a part of this, it was just, there was no question that I was going to participate. And we had a couple of really long conversations, I think one back going into January of 2019, and then a second follow-up conversation, maybe in April or May of 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, we talked for over you know, four or five hours or something along, along those lines. And one of the things that really struck me about that first interview was how incredibly well-prepared you were. Uh, I mean, just the level of preparation, the, le- the, the, I was pretty surprised that, I mean, you know, no offense. I was pretty surprised you knew what you knew what you were talking about. Um, and you guys had done your homework. Uh, and that was the first signal that I had, this was going to be something really special because the level of dedication that I saw there uh, and getting an inkling of sort of who was going to be involved in it. 
Um, uh, and so, you know, for me, it really wasn't, it was, a, it was an easy call in terms of, in terms of my time. And I think particularly because of the kind of work that I'm, that I'm transitioning to doing now, which is really public facing and trying to engage larger audiences about thinking about how we got here and what our stories are and, and why our world looks the way that it looks. It's a perfect compliment for that. But I guess the other thing I wanted to say to you, Rob, while I have it, and I didn't want to forget is the, the, the piece is it's thrilling. It's a, it's a thrilling yeah. six part uh, show. Uh, and it's, it's, it's got the high notes. It's got the low notes. It's got the animation, uh, the music, the found footage that, I mean, the, the mix of different kinds of media, um, the use of the storytellers, almost like an orchestra, the, the level of actors, the, the selection of, uh, the, the kinds of speeches that they were going to give all woven together, the way that you selected what each hour was going to be about. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that if we have a chance. So there was just no question that I was going to be involved in this. And I'm so delighted that you asked me to be to be part of it. I do have to say, you know, <laughs> what what separates this project from any other that I've I've been a part of is uh, the the quality of people that we were able to interview and what everyone brought to it. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I think Michelle, you and Melissa, I think we our our initial interviews were many hours long um and you would not know that you know i i I was amazed that you could walk out of there (laughs) because you just talked forever but it was just so interesting and and everything that you we could run those interviews and everyone would be mesmerized by those interviews so i you know we did them initially in 2018 um, and they are as fresh right now as they were then. And I, that's a testament to, to you. That's not a testament to me. I, I'm just, I'm the lucky guy who's able to sit there and ask you guys questions and then listen, which is thank you, because uh, you really brought something very special to it. it. I was surprised by how much time we did spend with the interviews. Like, I thought it would be maybe an hour and by the end of it, I was like, I should have packed a lunch. I'm hungry. Like, this is, this is a really long time. <laughs> oh, did, did we only tell you it was going to be 20 minutes? Is that what you said? <laughs> so the series begins with slavery and abolition and then the Civil War as a background. And the Reconstruction Amendments are really positioned as a kind of new founding moment. Um, is that a fair characterization, Robe? Like it's a fresh start for the country, a, a new constitutional moment that's supposed to correct the deficiencies of what preceded it? That is true. And I think what um, what initially attracted me to the 14th Amendment was this notion that it, a remedy had been placed in the Constitution, that there was, there was actually something that existed that was already a fix. Um, what came later was just realizing uh, all of the resistance all along the way uh, that came with the research. And so I think this had started out as something that was going to be a much more sort of optimistic, perhaps naive exercise. <laughs> and, and, and then came the realization, oh, wait, this is, this is a lot deeper and, and also explains why we're not living in a utopia right now. So the documentary has, I think, bookending it, this question of what it means to be a citizen. And it begins with 
the Dred Scott decision and the pre-Civil War era where the court specifically makes clear that African-Americans and those who are descended of African-American slaves are ineligible for citizenship. And then the 14th Amendment is intended to be a corrective. You note that along the way, there are actually two paths that can be taken. Um, one where the entire constitution as originally written is completely scrapped and we start fresh. And the other is we amend it. And you note that Frederick Douglass is something of an institutionalist, even as he is an abolitionist. He wants to keep the older constitution and believes that the bones are there, but there is actually a, a fracture in the abolitionist movement with some people thinking this is too tainted to be redeemed. And that becomes a theme throughout. So your book ended with this question of citizenship and Dred Scott at the front end. And you conclude with this question of the current debate over what it means to be a citizens with undocumented persons, um, the fight over um, immigration and whatnot. But all along is this sort of oscillating trajectory where you're delving into, should we have amended it and fixed it? Or was it so irredeemably tainted that it's irrevocably just damage and we can't get past this. Where did you wind up? <laughs> um, I, I think very much uh, like the project itself, it's, it's a work in progress. I, I, I go back and forth uh, on a regular basis. And um, I come from, my parents were active in the civil rights movement. I come from a place of hope uh, that you can always affect some sort of change the more I learn about American history, and I'm always learning about it, uh, the less I feel like that is that is uh, an easy thing to do, um, particularly around the law. And um, I, I would say that, you know, I think uh, you have to set your sights on what you can accomplish. But uh, we, we, you and I have, have talked about uh, other more radical possibilities of, you know, scrapping the whole thing, even even now, is it is it a question, you know, as we enter this new era of reconstruction, you know, should we be thinking about something bigger? Should we be looking at something, you know, that's a little bit more robust in terms of our protections of citizenship rights? So you depict Reconstruction as kind of the high watermark for Black political participation that is quickly diminished by the force of redemption. And you also position the Supreme Court as one of the principal actors in dimming the 14th Amendment's possibilities for affecting real and lasting change in the postbellum period. Why did you focus on redemption and also focus on the court's role in redemption? I think the court's role was the biggest surprise to all of us. I think most of us think about the court and we think about uh, the Warren court. Um, we think about, I think it was Ted Shaw who, who, who did the math and basically summed it up that there were like 12 good years of the Supreme Court, you know, and, and the rest is, is sort of, you know, doing away with or, or diminishing rights of, of inclusion. Um, and I think that that was a huge surprise to me and, and to everyone else who worked on the project. Um, I hadn't known much about the Reconstruction Court. Uh, I hadn't known much about the cases from Slaughterhouse to Plessy. I hadn't known much about uh, the move towards corporate rights and away from black civil rights. Uh, and learning all of that became um, something that it's just, I, I don't see how you tell the story without that. Um, and I, I also don't think that, um, you know, it's, 
uh, a good place to be uh, where you're placing false hope in an institution uh, that really doesn't live up to it. Um, and I, you know, initially I think we were talking about ending with the love episode uh, as sort of a, a happy, uplifting note uh, and an example of what the court can still do. Um, but that increasingly felt like a false note to land on. So uh, I, I was actually really happy where it ended up. I was extremely grateful you covered redemption because every year in constitutional law, students will come in having heard of Reconstruction. So few of them will have heard about redemption at all. Um, and I think Adam Serwer at the Atlantic has kind of popularized this or made you know more people in the broader public aware of it. You know, he called the current court, I think, the second redemption court mm. in some of its decisions on voting rights. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I was, you know, although that is not as you were saying the happiest part of the series, like the love episode, I think it's such an important part of it. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Calling all Crooked Media fans, we need your feedback and we're 100% prepared to bribe you for it. This is a new way for those of you who love Crooked content and our mission to make your voices heard. It's your chance to influence everything from merch designs to our digital content to what Love It Eats for lunch. Okay, I guess. That last part's a joke, obviously. He's ordering Panda Express again and no one can stop him. That's I'm true, reading that's this. That's true, that's true. Did they not know I was going to read this? <laughs> Here's how it works. Just fill out a survey about your Crooked podcast preferences and you're in. We'll reach out to you when we need your opinion, and you'll get a promo code to the Crooked store every time you participate. So sign up, help us out, because Tommy gets scared when you show up at his gym to tell him about your t-shirt ideas. That is true. It was a good idea, though. Go to crooked.com slash insiders to join today. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at crooked.com slash friends. Well, I was wondering what Michelle thought um, watching this. Um, it's such a familiar story for law professors, um, but it almost seemed weirdly cinematic and, again, thrilling to watch it play out, even though you know how it's going to end. I was, like, really invested in Reconstruction, and then I felt completely let down with the court, and, and I've read all of these cases. Like, was it like that for you too, Michelle, like, seeing it afresh? It was more than what I expected it was going to be, but I also think in a lot of ways it's sort of what's in our head 
and it's compartmentalized in our head. And we sort of walk around with this information all the time. We walk around understanding what Slaughterhouse was about and what the civil rights cases were about and what Plessy was about. Um, and then you struggle to bring those cases to life in the classroom and you do the best that you can. Um, but it was like suddenly someone had sort of taken all that information and in our lived experience and then be, and then sort of, you know, projected it out uh, in the kind of, in the sort of broad three-dimensional way in which we think about the law and the ways that we live our lives as well. And, you know, a lot of, for me, that was the part that was just so thrilling. And it also, to me, it spoke to legacy. Like this piece is going to have a very, very, very long shelf life because it's going to be seen, it's going to be digested, it's going to be heard. And it's, you know, for me, it's exactly what I've been trying to do in my classes, but just sort of, you know, taken to the next level. So that's such an astute point. Um, you know, when we see these cases in books, it's, you know, Lochner, substantive due process, Mueller, women's rights, um, Crookshank. And, but they actually are happening all at the same time. And there's this whole commerce clause line of cases that's happening at the same time. But we don't talk about them as part of an era as opposed to their doctrinal silos. But when you see them laid out, you get this viewpoint of the court as deeply interventionist, even activist in this project of stopping social change. Part of that is the artificial nature of the law school curriculum, right? So because the law school curriculum is set up the way that it is, where you're teaching con law one and con law two, you're cracking those things open or you're having reproductive freedom as a separate course. So you are, you're, you're taking the, the cases out of their historical context and you're not looking, you're not looking at, you know, I mean, occasionally you'll look at the Warren Court, you'll talk about that as if, you know, if you bring that to it outside of the class, but in terms of the way in which the, the classes are set up, the textbooks are set up, uh, they're not designed to sort of give the student a, a 360 view and to step into this as living history. And I think that's what's so wonderful about Amend. It was one of the very first things that I, that I, I realized in talking to, to historians. Historians don't know much about the law and lawyers, excuse me, present company excluded, don't know a lot about history. And so the, the, the putting the, the, the chocolate and the peanut butter together was really important because you don't get a sense of the whole thing and how they fit together, you know, and, and, and I think that we had the opportunity to do that um, in a way that allowed, you know, all of you to come together and tell the story as one. That's what I meant by the orchestra. That's really, to me, when I think about the storytellers, you know, you've got to have the historians, you've got to have the law professors, uh, you've got to have sort of a mix of everybody, but you've got your oboes, you've got your violins, right? You've got, you've got everybody in there and they're making this beautiful music. And I think for the, for the viewer, they, they're now able to receive that. Um, the other piece for me that's so important is the level of diversity. Um, I think one of the things that you've done is you've sort of introduced a new generation to a new generation of scholars who are really diverse. And I, I very much appreciate that because I think about, and you know, I don't, I don't want to cast any aspersion on this, but if you go back and take a look at sort of Ken Burns's work and look at the Civil War piece, right, which is really, which is incredibly wonderful in many, many ways, but it's not, you know, it lacks that level of diversity. And I think that's incredibly important for this moment. It was really important for us to have a wide ranging group of people telling the same story. It was, vital that, um, you know, we, we include uh, different people of different races, both as storytellers and as performers. Uh, and I think, you know, Hamilton certainly helped us in, in that degree by opening the door. But the story it told 
was the wrong story. <laughs> the story that 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 you know that we own is this story, and and it gave us a chance to to actually claim it. So it was also intergenerationally diverse because my yes. daughter was had zero interest in this, um, minus zero when she learned I was a part of it. But then she found out that Yada Shahidi was in it. She's like, I might watch one or two episodes. Yeah, my daughter's about the same age. And she, you know, she tried to act all cool like she wasn't that interested in it. But then it held her attention. And that was what, that's when I knew we had something. That's when I knew you had something. Wow. That's so great to hear. That's a win. I'll also tell you one more thing, which is my, my, my law students have been watching it. And several of them have commented to me that they cried. At different portions of the show. And this is why I say that it's thrilling because you're reaching people on an intellectual level, you're reaching them on an emotional level and you're engaging them in a way that I think is really important. Wow. Yeah, no, it's, again, it's the power of the narrative. So I think the best episode is the one about women's rights because it's just all, all the things I love talking about and I'm in it. I'm like, this is my favorite episode. Um, I thought you did such an amazing job of really hammering in on the real nuances and difficulties and complexities of the women's rights movement. Um, the conflict between white feminism and women of color and trying to integrate that movement. I love that you began this by nodding to Polly Murray and highlighting Polly Murray's work in laying a foundation for bridging the gap between race and gender and making that clear. How did you decide to break out these episodes? Like each one has a thematic hook, but they all cohere. So how did you plan this out and come up with six individual episodes that could all stand alone, but collectively are a kind of narrative that makes sense together, even as they are singularly distinct? So first, let me say that um, whenever a filmmaker starts using I, uh, he or she is lying. <laughs> it is the most collaborative medium that there is. It is. A filmmaker's eye is sort of the inverse of the, the royal we. Um, there's a large team that worked on this. And um, so the construction of each episode, uh, you know, I, w- I will say I created the, uh, the series and designed the, the episodes. But once that happens and did all of the interviews with you guys, but once that happens, there's a large team that really gets into the footage and gets into what's working and what's not working. And, and so I just want to applaud everybody who had a hand in, in developing that. Polly Murray was another one of these people who, like you know Harriet Jacobs and even Douglas himself, you, you don't know that story. And it's so important to understand that she was at the nexus of the arguments that won these rights. Um, and not just one, but, but you know, she's at the intersection of them. So it was really important for us to start with something personal and, and build out from that. Um, the women's episode, you know, the first three episodes are more or less a trilogy of um, the, the black struggle for, for civil rights. Then the women's episode is number four, um, uh, LGBTQ and same-sex marriage is number five, and immigration is number six, because the idea was, let's get out of the storytelling silos that we normally live in and show how this one story affects all of these different people and all of these different groups. 
Um, the women's episode was a particular challenge because it was an argument. Um, many of the others were telling the story, but the women's episode was an argument, and the argument was essentially uh, that 14 has never worked for women the way that it was designed. Um, and I, they, I remember, Melissa, we got into a somewhat spirited argument, I think, over scrutiny, <laughs> strict scrutiny. Who, me? <laughs> a spirited <laughs> argument? Me? You got spirited. I think I got quiet. <laughs> you, were, you were a thousand percent right. What was our argument about? Like about the level of scrutiny? It was, in fact, over um, the goal of whether or not to go for strict scrutiny for the women, for women to go for strict scrutiny or not, um, you know, following the path of race, because obviously that became a trap. Um, and so... I mean, you could explain it better than I, but and 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 you you certainly did that day, um, but you know, for me, I I'm not a lawyer, so it felt like not going for strict scrutiny was somehow giving up, mm. and and you set the record straight on that. I'm remembering vaguely this conversation, um, but I, I think one of the things that that comes up in the the episode is. It's really hard because they're in between their own movement and the movement, the civil rights movement, that's coming to a conclusion in a way that perhaps was unexpected. So they're agitating for strict scrutiny in 1973 in that Frontiero case. And in the same year, you have the court thinking about whether affirmative action and race-conscious measures um, that benefit minorities should be struck down under strict scrutiny. And, and they're sort of caught in this you know, nether space where they see the outcome and is it enough time for them to sort of save their own movement from what the eventual backlash is likely to be. And, you know, so again, I think this is something that law students um, also have difficulty with when it comes up in con law, but is the whole struggle in the women's rights movement over the standard of review, um, you know, is the race movement a kind of canary in a coal mine that helps them avert mm -hmm. a disaster? Yeah, and, and we struggled with the storytelling because it, making television out of that um, and continuing to, con, you know, keep it interesting for people who aren't lawyers or in con law um, was a challenge for us. I, I'm, I'm not sure how successful we were in the end, but um, in the end, I think we, we decided to uh, not go quite as deep into uh, strict scrutiny. Strong, strong choice, strong choice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. And we thought it was incredibly narratively successful for what it is worth. Um, and I actually wanted to ask a question about the next episode or, or to highlight something and then ask a question. Um, and so that's episode five about LGBTQ rights. Um, and pretty early in the episode, you have this um, long interview with the lawyer who challenged this discriminatory ordinance in Cincinnati, Ohio. So you you know, you have a bunch of interviews with Jim Obergefell, um, who, of course, is was the named plaintiff in the court's sort of you know huge recent um, marriage equality case. Um, and I think, you know, people are probably familiar with Obergefell, but the history of Cincinnati and the mm. discriminatory laws in place in the city that he was from, I think was actually probably, is was it was new information to me and I think probably new to a lot of people. So I think it's both somewhat familiar terrain, but even to con law professors, there was a lot that was new and fresh there. Um, and I, I, there was this one moment that I really loved where you played a clip from the oral argument in the Sixth Circuit. 
and you're interviewing the lawyer who lost that case, and you have this voiced exchange, so you've cast it with an actor, and it's just a, an appellate argument. And, and you know, so you have all, obviously a lot of letters and Supreme Court decisions, and then this was just an appeals court argument, but it really came to life to sort of, you know, stage and dramatize it that way. So so one, I loved that. Um, but two, there was the moment when the, the lawyer um, sort of says, it's, you know, talks about in this very human way how hard it is to lose a big civil rights case like that. Um, and it starts to break down just a little bit. And in, mm-hmm. the, in the, I guess it's, I think it's the, um, the love episode, uh, Martha mm-hmm. Jones, a little bit when she's talking about loving in her own family, has this incredibly moving moment in which she, her voice breaks and she pauses for a couple of seconds. And so, I mean, I, I guess I'm just, I know that you weren't directing these scenes, but sort of how did you prepare the storytellers going into these scenes? And was there a lot of that? This is a lot of painful material, I think, in a lot of the episodes. And so I guess were there a lot of moments like that? And how did you respond to them? We, one of the things that we wanted to do, um, because everyone who we invited in as a storyteller um, had thought a lot about the amendment um, and a lot about how the amendment works and, and how it works in American society. But uh, we wanted actually to ask everyone how it affected them personally. Um, and so we had everyone talk about how it affected them personally. And... Uh, I warned Martha that I was going to ask this question. Martha, again, I think it was a five-hour interview. And uh, over lunch, I warned her that I was going to ask this question. And she she had another answer um, that I thought would have been pretty good. I, I, I can't remember it right now. But uh, then she thought of that one. And I said, well, you're probably going to get emotional in that. So that's up to you. Uh, I'm not going to shy away from emotion. That's what we do. We love to make people cry in TV. Um, but, you know, she she said, OK, well, I'll give it a shot. And, and there's we left it in. She said, you warned me this was going to happen. Um, and that's what that was, because it is very personal and very emotional. And, you know, I, the courage that it takes to come in, you're, you're talking about something, you know, that you've studied, that you've taught. But then when it gets that close to you to come in and, and, and actually talk about it in that way and in such personal terms uh, is really quite remarkable. Um, so, I, you know, I'll, I'll be forever grateful to her for getting that personal. Al Gerhardstein was Jim's lawyer in Cincinnati, and he, um, I, don't, I can't remember if it's in the piece, but he said, you know, if you want to be a civil rights lawyer, uh, go work in the Midwest. <laughs> yeah, you did. Yeah, you yeah. kept that. It's a great line. Um, you know, and and he was our very first interview. Um, and, you know, and again, we did like a five week run in New York of interviews where um, we did we interviewed somewhere north of 45 people. And Al was the very first and uh, he cried in that moment, I did not expect that to happen at all. Um, and there were a couple moments later where he also, he, he cried. We all cried during that story. Um, but uh, again, it just often, and, and you all know this better than I, you know, we talk about the law in sterile, abstract, or distant terms. And I think what this really brought home is just how personal it can be, you know, I mean, for the people who are involved, but also, you know, for the people who are working on it and who give so much of themselves, you know, to, to trying to make the law work for other people. 
Um, so we've already talked about the immigration episode a little bit, but I did want to come back to it because in some ways this episode is hopeful. It talks about the Supreme Court's recognition of birthright citizenship and you know, the rejection of efforts to deny citizenship to people who were born to persons uh, who weren't citizens. Um, but then it also covers you know, some of the backlash to or efforts to get around that decision that the Supreme Court upheld, you know, whether it's the Chinese exclusion laws um, or efforts to, you know, again, police the contours of citizenship while enabling discrimination on the basis of race and sex, you know, in the area of immigration. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about why you chose to end with that episode. I mean, to me, this is obviously an area where we still continue to see the lingering consequences of some of those decisions, you know, the Chinese exclusion cases, as well as cases giving the federal government broad power, you know, to engage in discrimination in this area. But aside from maybe not wanting to give us a sense of false optimism, you know, why was this kind of the close of the series? Um, It wasn't originally. Originally, I think we had love as the close of the series. And we did not have an immigration episode. We had an episode about uh, incorporation, and it was through the McDonald case we were talking about uh, Second Amendment rights. We decided that actually we 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 needed to include immigration. This was we we kicked it around. We we had a couple of different ideas. I think um, uh, Michelle, I, I had talked to you at one point about. Uh, an episode that we were considering calling Consequence, which is how we had undone many of the 14th Amendment's uh, high watermarks. Um, and Immigration was the episode that we landed on because it had been such a big issue during this past administration. Um, and, you know, I, you can talk about where the 14th Amendment applies and where it doesn't. Um, but we really, we had always intended to talk about um, Chinese Americans and the cases from the 19th century that really opened a lot of doors and shut some others. We always intended to talk about, um, you know, the various issues that the uh, Latino community had with uh, the 14th Amendment and, and uh, equal rights and equal protection. So, you know, it, it, it made sense uh, to do that. And the structure for that episode of uh, immigrant, alien, criminal um, was a provocative way of getting at, again, you know, the, the role of the court in not opening up rights, but closing them off. So one thing that struck me in watching this, and it's interesting that it's released in February of 2021, you know, there's a new administration when you were making this, the prospect of a Biden administration was not really even a possibility. I mean, we sat down in 2018 and we were in the thick of the Trump administration. And Michelle, I think you and I talked about this at one point, but there did seem, at least in the storytelling that we were doing with you all, a kind of urgency to sort of relate the history to this moment. Michelle, watching this now, does it seem like the same sense of purpose and urgency is still there? Um, for you, Robe, does it sort of hit a little less intently to have this come out with the Trump administration on sort of the backside or in the rearview mirror? Well, just on that, I mean, one of the things I noticed, you know, when we had these conversations, they were before, you know, last summer. And one of the things I think you did throughout um, 
um, you know, several of the episodes was to really bring home the previous summer and bring and bring in the Black Lives Matter protests as well as what happened in connection uh, with with George Floyd. And so I thought that was really it. It looked as if it had been intentionally done, but when I, of course, I knew that we had been interviewed way before that, and so there was a way in which I thought that was just just incredibly well integrated with respect to that. I think we're going to wrap in a minute, but Michelle, want to see if there are any other thoughts on the experience or on the docuseries to share? The thing that really struck me that I kept thinking about, and was a question I think that you asked me, Robe, I don't think it made it into the final cut, was sort of this, the distance between the promise and the reality of this country and the promise of the 14th Amendment and our lived reality of it. And it comes up a couple of times in connection with some of the other folks that are that are interviewed. And I think that's that's the place that you are in in the series. And it's it's a place where you have to try really hard to not go crazy because you have to hold on to both that promise and the possibility of what the country can be, but also understanding the reality at the same time. And it's it's holding those two things together that I think is a challenge, but I think it also requires engagement in terms of how are we going to try to make this this world a better place and and you know further perfect this union. And so that's that's another piece of this that I think that you captured well, and I think it was captured in a number of the different episodes. The gap between promise and reality uh, is is wide, and and I will say I, I, again, when we began, I really wanted to focus on the promise, um, but the reality kept fighting its way into the story. What do you want the takeaway for your viewers to be from this film, to understand the promise and the potential, to see how repeatedly we and our institutions have failed to live up to that promise? So for people who see this film, um, what to you is most important that they take away? We wanted to change the conversation about American history uh, and about our institutions. We wanted to change the conversation away from uh, you know this exceptionalism that uh, is we can take for granted that you know the, the long arc of history bends towards justice. Uh, it has to be bent. It has to constantly be hammered and bent. And there are people who have done that throughout our history who have not been acknowledged, uh, and that history has been unseen and hidden. And we wanted to do something on scale. I remember one of my very early meetings saying this. I wanted to do something on the scale that would that would change the conversation about American history, period. Um, and I think once we started to get the people, including the people in this conversation, uh, you know, involved in the film, uh, that became a possibility. So I'm, I'm hoping that this does become part of a larger conversation and does help to make people aware of all of the things that we have not been aware of or been made aware of or have been taught uh, in in our schools and our textbooks. Uh, There's so much more. This is six hours of 150 years and we've just scratched the surface. We haven't even begun to scratch the surface. Well, it's an amazing, amazing production. Um, The production values are fantastic. It is thrillingly told, beautifully executed. If you are a con law student, this will definitely expand your understanding of what you're getting in class and and take you to the next level. 
If you're just someone who wants to binge on something in the middle of a pandemic while you're eating popcorn and other carbohydrates, it is also fantastic for that. So this is definitely appointment television, no less than the scintillating interview between Queen of America, Oprah Winfrey, and the Duchess of Success, Meghan Markle, last week. So highly recommend, two enthusiastic thumbs up. Um, so maybe we should end on that <laughs> note and thank Robe and Michelle for joining us for this. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, and also for this uh, delightful docuseries, which everyone can watch on Netflix. Um, thank you to our producer, Melody Rowell. Thank you to Eddie Cooper, who makes our music. And you can support the show and become a Glow subscriber at glow.fm forward slash strict scrutiny. Thanks, everyone.